Today we're going to cover Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. And I will remind you that Paul is writing this letter to those at Colossae. This is a town that has, at one time it was big and important, but is now dwarfed by the neighboring cities, including Ephesus. So it's lost its clout, but it's still important in God's eyes. And right now, when Paul writes this letter, they are plagued with Gnosticism and extreme forms of intermixing Gnosticism with Christianity, which is not Christianity. But there are true believers intermixed with this Gnostic group in Colossae. But these Gnostics are people who believe that matter is bad and spirit is good. They believe that a higher form of knowledge is superior than faith. And so they are pushing this Gnostic idea in the church at Colossae. And Paul is refuting this Gnosticism as he writes this letter. That's the background to this letter here. The title of this sermon is, All Things in Christ. Why that title? Because the Gnostics would say, Christ and. Christ and. But we believe in Christ alone. Sola what? And solo, what else? Scripture and? Christus. Christus, that's right. So Christ alone, right? A lot of people say that's Calvinism. I say that's biblical. (laughs) Christ alone. And we'll see here in this section of Colossians, it's clear that it's by Christ alone. We're only saved by the blood of Christ. It's in him. All things are in Christ. So before we get into this great text, let's pray. Father, be with me as I preach your word and expound what you have to say to the people. As we take Paul's letter to Colossae and make application to our lives today. It's in his name we pray, Christ. Amen. All things in Christ. All things in Christ. And we're going to see two sections here. The fact that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And then secondly, that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. All things in Christ. Now. Some of you may understand what a chiastic structure is in literature. If you don't, I will explain it. It's a beautiful thing. A chiastic structure means that point A and point Z will match. Point B and point Y will match. And then two more points will match in the middle. So it kind of points like this. It's a chiastic structure. This structure isn't just there for the sake of shape. 
It's there to explain something, to accentuate something. And the thing that is accentuated in this chiastic structure is all things in Christ. And if you want to write this down, it will behoove you to do so, this structure. Verse 15 and verse 18, the second part of verse 18, where it starts with who. Those two go together. And then in verse 16 and verse 19, where it starts with four. Those two go together. And then lastly, verse 17 and the first part of verse 18 where it starts with he is, those two go together. And the apex of the whole section is verse 17, the second part, when it talks about in him all things hold together. That's the chiastic structure. Now that you've written that down, pay attention to this structure as we go through this lesson, this sermon. It will help you to understand that Christ, in him, all things hold together. It points to Christ, that all things are in Christ. Let's begin with verse 15. Well, actually, I'll read the section first. Verse 15. It starts with who. Now, it goes back to talking about, uh, in verse 13, the Son. Okay? Who? Who? is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven." And I am reading from the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, an upgraded version of the NASB if it sounds different to you. So just so you know that. So all things in Christ. We'll start with verse 15. He talks about this who. This is the Jesus Christ of verse 13. And it Verse 13, it says who, and this, is, this who in verse 13 is God the Father, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us, transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. So the Son. And then in verse 14, this Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're focused on the Son now. The Son. He's the who here in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. You all know the words, the word icon. Someone is an icon. It refers to a statue, uh, something, a symbol in English language today. Someone who's important. They're an icon in society, an icon. 
This word image is the word icon. It's saying that Jesus Christ is the icon of the invisible God. He is the image of God. It does not say he was made in the image of God. It says that he is the image of God. He is the icon of God, meaning he is the revelation of God. We cannot see God, but Christ himself is the image of God. How do we know God? We see Christ. He is God. This is a strong declaration of his deity. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The radiance of his glory. His glory. God the Father's glory. Christ has all the attributes of the Father. Including these following five things. Now this list that I'm going to give you is not exhaustive. But these are five important things that Christ shares in his attributes with the Father. Number one. He is the creator. He is the creator. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God. And then in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And listen to this. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, that's interesting. Nothing came into being that has come into being. That means Christ could not have come into being. Because it says nothing has come into being other than through him that has come into being. (laughs) So Christ has not come into being. He always was. He always was. And then down in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Maganes. That means single, one of his kind, one of its kind. He was the only of his kind. The only from the Father. This is this Christ. He is the creator. He was not created. Number two, he is unable to sin. Unable to sin. Adam and Eve were created without sin, but they were able to sin. Christ is unable to sin, like God the Father. Second, Colossians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. He did not have a relationship with sin. He was not bound in sin. It doesn't mean he didn't just understand sin or know about sin. It means he did not, he was not connected with sin. There was no sin in him. 
Number three, he is all-powerful. All-powerful. Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark 4, 38 through 39. Jesus himself was in the stern. This is when he was on the ship. On the, on the ship, I say ship, but it's really a boat. <laughs> it wasn't a ship is what we think of today. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind. Rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Hush, be still. Mohammed cannot do that. Buddha can't do that. Only God can calm the natural elements. Jesus says, hush, be still. Imagine if you were there right now, and you're in the midst of a nice Minnesota windstorm, and Jesus says, hush, be still, and the snow stops and melts. Next, he is all-knowing. All-knowing. John chapter 2, 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew. You see, today we can be flustered and fooled by people that give us a pat on the back. But Jesus knew all men. He knew all men. Next, lastly, he sees all things. He sees all things. Now, I know all you theologians out there know that I'm talking about omniscience, omniscience, omnipotence, and all these kinds of things. But I'm not trying to teach big words. I want you to understand that he is, everything is in Christ. He sees all things. John chapter 1, 47 through 49. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? (laughs) He had never met him before. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He is God. He is God. He sees all things. Let's contrast that with man. Because we know in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 that man was made in God's image. But he is not the image of God. This image that man was made, or the fact that man was made in the image of God, was not a 100% filling of God's image. We are not God. We do not possess deity. We're we're not all-knowing, all-powerful and can see everything we never have been. Man is like God in intellect, rational thinking, 
the power to be ever able to rule over all creation. We have emotions, unlike my dog at home, who sits there and stares at me for a bite to eat, and I think that if I don't feed him, he will eat me. We're unlike the animals. Today, this image that we've been created in has been corrupted. We're going through that in Genesis with Pastor Steve. Our image is corrupted. However, that image will be perfected. We are all being transformed into the image of Christ right now. Those of us who are saved. So, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Remember that word, firstborn. So, in this context, the meaning is that we all will be conformed to his image. We're all being reconciled to God through Christ, and therefore being transformed into his image. It says here, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. So Christ is the firstborn of all creation. What does that firstborn mean? Does that mean he was the first one who was born in the creation? Of course not. Of course not. He was not the first born into creation. We just went over the fact of how Christ is in God's image in so many different ways. He was unmade. This Greek word is prototokos, is a superlative word. It means supreme in rank, firstborn. Not the first to be born, but the first over the born. He is the supreme in rank, the superlative. This is a word indicating status rather than birth order. He is the firstborn in status rather than birth order. Paul is saying that Christ holds supremacy over all creation. That's how he's the firstborn. And then he goes on to explain this in verse 16. Verse 16 says, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, Or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. For in him all things were created. In him. Christ is the source of creation. Christ is the source. This means he has the ability within himself to create. Although scientists out there will know that in order to create something, to bring forth something, you must possess that thing. If he is the creator, he has the ability to create within himself. This is why it says, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth. This isn't specifically the heavens and on earth. He created everything that's on this ball called earth and everything that's in the sky. This is talking about comprehensively. He created everything there is. Everything, including man and angels. In chapter 2, of Colossians, turn there, chapter 2, and verse 10. It says, and in him you have been filled, 
who is the head over all rule and authority. He is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 15. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumph over them in him. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind. You see, those in Colossae were worshiping angels. This is that Gnosticism. He's saying that nothing, nothing is above Christ. In him, all things were created on the heavens and the earth, including the angels. Including the angels. Christ is not an angel. There are religions that teach that he is an angel. He's not an angel. He created the angels is what it's saying here. Everything on the heavens and earth. Go back to chapter 1. It says, all things have been created through him and for him. Through him and for him. Now, where it says heavens and earth and through him and for him, it says it again further down. So, we're going to touch base on that a little later. Remember, this is a chiastic structure. So, through him and for him. So, through him. This means he's the acting agent who brings it about. So, he possesses it. It's in him. He possesses the ability to create and he also creates. All things are created through him. He's the agent who created. All things are created for him, for his pleasure, for his purpose. The goal is to glorify God. And in this section, we see that it's to glorify Christ himself. And so Paul tells us in his letters to Rome and Corinth that we should do all things for the glory of God the Father. So this is a clear indication of Christ's deity and his supremacy over all things. Romans 11, 33, 36 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And here's the key. And this is talking about God the Father. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To God the Father. The same speaks of Christ. He receives the glory. We should do all for the glory of God. And then it says in verse 17, he is before all things. All things. Now, this is a summary of all the things he just mentioned above in the world. Because later, in verse 18, it says that he's the head of the church. That summarizes everything that comes after. So, we're almost to the middle of that chiasm here. So, he just summarized everything he just talked about by saying, before all things. And now here comes the crux of the whole thing. It says, and in him all things hold together. 
all things hold together. Now we're going to cover how he holds together the church, but he just mentions how he holds together the whole world. All things are in Christ. To him be the power and the glory. So, down to verse 18, the first part here, where it says, and he is, and he is. This matches the beginning of verse 17, and he is. Now there's a transition from the world to the church. From the world to the church. Christ is king over all. Now we're talking about the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Those are the ones with whom he has made reconciliation in verse 20. And he goes on in verse 22 about how he reconciled them in the body of his flesh through death. This is the church now. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Christ is the crux of this whole thing. He is the head of the body. God has put him there. The second part of 18, it says, who is? This goes back to verse 15. It matches verse 15. It says, who is? The first time it says, who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of creation. Now it says, who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. So another firstborn. The first time he was the firstborn of creation. And now he's the firstborn from the dead. So he is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the source of all things. In Revelation 22, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the source of all things. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, this is a subject of confusion sometimes. He was indeed the first one who was resurrected. Surely he was. I know you're thinking, well, Lazarus was brought from the dead first. And all the other saints at his crucifixion were also raised. Lazarus surely died again. Lazarus was not made immortal. He still died again. And those saints that were raised, it says that they were raised after Christ came. After. And we also know that in Ezekiel 18.20, that the person who sins must what? Die. The person who sins must die. Lazarus surely sinned. Only Christ is the only one who lived without sin. So Matthew 27.50 through 53 talk about these saints who were raised. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So clearly, Christ is the literal first one that was raised. But in this context, it's not just talking about the fact that Christ was the first one who was raised. Because before we talked about that word firstborn, meaning he is the supreme. The one who is ruler. So he is the first of rank of those who are resurrected. So the fact that Christ is resurrected, we too will be resurrected. So he is the firstborn. He is the supreme of all those who are ever resurrected. John 5.21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The Son gives life. How can someone give something if they don't possess it? Romans 6.4-6, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism and to death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. This is how Christ is the firstborn of the dead. He is the firstborn of those who have been raised from the dead. What is the purpose of this? It says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. All things in Christ. This is the result of his resurrection. He is first place. If God hadn't raised Christ, he wouldn't be God. Christ wouldn't be God. Christ wouldn't be sitting at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after his death and resurrection. All things in Christ. Now, why is Christ supreme over the dead? Why? When verse 19 explains that. Verse 19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. (laughs) All the fullness. The Father has bestowed on Christ what was due to the Father himself. Christ is God. This includes honor, authority, power, and being first place over all things. You see, God could not give that over to anyone else. He is first place in all things. Even though in our society, everybody gets a ribbon. Even if you're fifth place, God says there's only one who's first place, and that's him. He gives the same about his son. 
who is first place because his son is God. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the father reconciled all things to himself through Christ. Reconciled. This word for reconciled means a complete reconciliation. Sufficient. Christ alone. Once again, Christ alone. It's a complete, sufficient uh, reconciliation. Why is that so important with these Gnostics? Because they said there's more that needs to be done. There's more. There's angels. There's, there's more we can depend on. But Christ is the complete reconciliation. Reconciliation talks about bringing us back to the right relationship with God the Father. Well, Christ himself is the only one who brings that through his death on the cross. 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Listen at that. God was in Christ reconciling, reconciling the world to himself. Christ is God, all things in Christ. Amen? It goes on to say in verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross. His death provided peace with God and thus reconciliation because he took the punishment that we should have taken. No one can earn their way to heaven. But Christ has provided this way through this reconciliation provided by his blood on the cross. This is why the angels at Jesus' birth pronounce peace among men. Peace among men. When I was a kid, I thought it meant that we'll all get along because of Jesus. That is not what it means. Luke 2, 9 through 14 And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. That's the good news. The Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. This is the good news. This is why we have peace. This is why. And then they went on to sing and they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. It's Christ that brings the true peace with God. And lastly, it says, Through him were there things on earth or things in heaven. Well, that was mentioned previously in verse 16. It says, both in the heavens and on the earth. Remember this chiasm we talked about here. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
Again, this is a general statement, meaning everything. Not just specific things, but everything. It's a a hypothetical statement. In both verses, Paul means that in a general general way, Christ's atonement covered sins and will bring reconciliation in the form of man and creation. You say, wait a minute, how can creation be reconciled? We all know Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Wow. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So his atonement covers sins and brings reconciliation to man and creation. We have reconciliation through the blood of Christ Jesus. The crazy thing is that so many of us forfeit this reconciliation by unbelief, by not trusting in the one who brings about this reconciliation. You cannot earn your own way to heaven. I don't care if you have a checklist of good deeds and you go to church every Sunday and you're just a good old nice person. If you're not totally trusting in Christ Jesus and you've given yourself 100% into his care, you have no reconciliation. Reconciliation comes only through faith in Christ Jesus. When we have faith at the same time when we're focused on Christ Jesus, we repent of our sins at the same time. You do not have reconciliation if you have no faith. You have no faith if you have no repentance. They're one together. So I say, do you trust that Christ is all and that all is in Christ? If you do, you have reconciliation. If you do not recognize today that all things are in Christ, he is king, he is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has provided for us salvation from our sins and reconciliation with you. We are brought back into a right relationship as mankind with you, Lord. But one day, not only will we be not sinning, we won't be able to sin. We await that glorious day, Lord. We give your Son, Jesus Christ, all the glory, because all things are in Christ Jesus. Amen.